Is vitamin D the cargo cult of sunshine? Vitamin D is a popular nutritional supplement. There are numerous claims of its health benefits, and hundreds of studies show that low serum vitamin D is linked to all manner of diseases. But there appears to be a paradox. Clinical trials often show that restoring low serum vitamin D with supplementation provides little, if any, benefit. What's going on here? In this episode, we're going to explore if vitamin D supplementation is the cargo cult of sun exposure. I'll explain what that means, and to do that, we're going to look at how a monk was obsessed with peas, bizarre findings from Nicolas Cage movies, the potency of Viagra, and why Van Halen hated the sight of brown M&Ms. Welcome, I'm Nathan Rose, and this is the SIF Podcast a show where we sift through the same information in areas such as health, nutrition, medicine and psychology in an attempt to get a better sense of what it all means. Using science and stories, I aim to synthesise the information so you are up to date and informed on topics that matter to your health and well-being. We will learn from the lessons from the past but also be excited about innovation and therapies on the horizon. Now, let's sift through the information. In the 1940s, in the picturesque Pacific Islands, the local inhabitants, who had largely had little contact with the modern world, were suddenly confronted with technology and resources that were unimaginable to them. Allied forces, particularly from the United States, began setting up military bases as part of their World War II strategy. The indigenous islanders witnessed the arrival of aeroplanes, weaponry, canned goods, radio communication and other modern technology. Seemingly, supernatural forces in the form of cargo planes descended from the heavens and expertly landed on newly constructed airstrips, effortlessly delivering bounties of delicious food and useful equipment. But, just as surprising as their unexpected arrival, the Allies rapidly vacated, along with their mysterious and valuable goods. The war was over. The islanders were left confused and saddened as they no longer had access to the Allies' resources. Human nature, whether it's a feature or a bug, is known to link correlation with causation. These Pacific Islanders were no exception. In what would have seemed like a rational attempt to lure back the cargo planes, the Islanders constructed incredibly impressive replicas of the Allies' equipment using only bamboo and straw. The islands were dotted with golden control towers and runways and life-size aeroplanes. The Islanders cloaked themselves in straw military uniforms and performed elaborate rituals in an attempt to conjure back the benevolent vessels from the sky. Alas, it was all in vain. The Allies never returned. Now, what has all this got to do with vitamin D supplementation? Well, I want to explore if vitamin D supplementation is akin to the cargo cult. Are we trying to replicate something that just might not provide the benefits we think it should? Vitamin D supplementation has become very popular in the past decade or so, and currently it is estimated to be a billion dollar industry worldwide. And there is reasonable justification for its popularity and recommendation for use. For instance, it's well known that sun exposure promotes our body's own production of vitamin D. However, vitamin D insufficient is epidemic because of modern indoor living and understandable concerns around skin cancers. Also, 
the research continues to amount that blood levels of vitamin D are often lower in people suffering numerous chronic diseases. Additionally, there is reasonable evidence that vitamin D supplementation confers benefit, particularly to bone health and immune function. Case closed then, right? Avoid the sun and take a supplement containing vitamin D so your blood levels get back into the adequate range. This will prevent and maybe even treat all manner of maladies, from cancer to cardiovascular disease to diabetes and autoimmunity. Or could we all be performing our own vitamin D cargo cult? Is supplementing vitamin D to achieve normal blood levels as futile as building intricate bamboo replicas? Is vitamin D a safe alternative to sun exposure? To find out, let's start at the beginning to see how sunshine and vitamin D became somewhat synonymous. In 1920, Vienna was a city in ruin and the residents were suffering. World War I had ended and the once strong city felt the aftermath of the war. Inflation, unemployment, hunger and disease were rampant. A considerable problem for the city was the incidence of rickets that the infants were experiencing. This bone disease had plagued humanity for centuries as previous physicians' remedies such as mercury salts and suspension torsos failed to provide a cure. Modern scientific medicine was in its infancy in the 1920s. However, there was emerging recognition that malnutrition and urban living in heavily polluted cities during the Industrial Revolution were linked to this affliction. Harriet Schick was a pioneering female microbiologist from England leading into World War I. However, Harriet transitioned to focus on the emerging science of nutrition to help combat wartime malnutrition. In 1919, Chick travelled to Vienna to lead a team to investigate a preventative or prophylactic treatment for rickets. Chick treated 75 infants with either local milk or imported grass-fed milk combined with cod liver oil in an attempt to prevent rickets. She found that none of the infants who received the grass-fed milk and cod liver oil developed rickets, while half the infants consuming local milk developed the disease. Chick, it seems, was an optimistic glass that is half full of milk type of woman. She was curious on why 50% of the infants drinking the local milk did not develop rickets. She poured through the data and discovered that the infants enrolled in the study during the summertime didn't develop rickets despite drinking the nutritionally depleted local milk. In contrast, the infants who enrolled in the study during the winter became susceptible to rickets if luck had assigned them to consuming the local milk. With these remaining sun and nutrient deprived rickettic children, she was launched a second trial. She originally prevented rickets. Could she now reverse the condition with not one, but two different therapies? Actually, she tried three different treatments for rickets. These infants received daily doses of either cod liver oil, springtime outdoor exposure, or were frequently placed under a mercury vapor quartz lamp. Overall, the results were unequivocal. All three groups showed complete healing within two to four weeks. The only caveat was those in the outdoor exposure healed rapidly if they were in full sun rather than shade. Thus, this was the first human study to show an unusual phenomena. Disease could be prevented or even reversed from either diet or ultraviolet radiation. With this as a background, we can understand how the benefits of sun exposure have been, by and large, exclusively attributed to vitamin D synthesis. You can either make vitamin D from sun exposure or you can consume it in your diet. 
the effects of vitamin D on human health have progressed from preventing and treating childhood rickets to being implicated in a wide range of chronic diseases in all life stages. But the effects of vitamin D on these diseases have not yet proven to be a slam dunk case like Chick demonstrated over 100 years ago. It's kind of complicated. Let's try to sift through it. A relatively easy, inexpensive and accurate tool to begin to piece together this puzzle is measuring blood levels of vitamin D and either follow subjects up in the future or compare blood levels of vitamin D between healthy people versus those suffering a health condition. According to the Endocrine Society's practice guidelines on vitamin D, a serum vitamin D level of 75 to 250 nanomoles per litre is considered sufficient, whereas 50 to 74 is insufficient and below 50 is deficient. Looking at the scientific literature, we can broadly conclude that it appears it's better to have adequate or even higher levels of serum vitamin D than lower levels. Firstly, multiple studies have found an inverse relationship with serum vitamin D and all-cause mortality. That is, if you have low vitamin D, you are at greater risk of dying. For example, a recent study on 849,000 people concluded that 13% of all US deaths, which is 340,000 deaths a year, and 9% of all deaths in Europe, which is 480,000 deaths per year, could be attributed to serum levels of vitamin D below 75. One of the leading causes of death is cancer, and low vitamin D is linked to cancer incidence and mortality. A large amount of research has looked at vitamin D status and breast cancer, and has found that there is a 400% increased risk of breast cancer associated with women whose vitamin D levels are less than 50, compared to women whose levels are above 150 nanomoles per litre. That's just the tip of the iceberg with associations of low serum vitamin D and chronic disease. Some other notable conditions linked to low serum vitamin D include metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's, autism, allergy, COVID, asthma, and autoimmunity, particularly multiple sclerosis and type 1 diabetes. We will look at some of these conditions in more detail shortly when we explore if and how ultraviolet radiation, rather than vitamin D per se, has a causal effect. But at this stage, using broad strokes, Overall, the association data suggests it's healthier to have your serum levels of vitamin D above 75 nanomoles per litre, and possibly it's optimal to have them between 100 and 150. Nicholas Cage and Swimming Pools We've just seen there's a convincing correlation between low serum vitamin D and chronic disease, but does correlation mean causation? To unpack this, let's get the help from Nicholas Cage. A strong correlation has been discovered between the number of films Nicholas Cage stars in a year and annual deaths from accidentally falling into swimming pools and drowning. In 2003, Cage appeared in only one film, Matchstick Men, which pulled a respectable 7.3 on IMDb. Also in that year, there was a relatively low instance of death by swimming pool fatalities, 85 recorded. Sadly, 85 too many. In 2007, Cage was busy and starred in four films, most notably National Treasure, Book of Secrets. That year was particularly tragic for swimming pool drownings, 123 harrowing incidents. If you compare over a decade the annual number of Cage films against yearly pool fatalities, they track almost like a mirror image. Statistically, they have a very high correlation. If you Google spurious correlations, 
there's a website showing this and other bizarre yet extremely tight correlations. The point here isn't to highlight or trivialise tragedies, but to show that two factors can be related but have no causal connection. To help better figure out if there's cause and effect between serum vitamin D and chronic disease, we can turn to the lessons learned from a 19th century monk who was obsessed with peas. A monk and his peas. Late in the summer of 1856, a short and slightly portly monk stood brooding in a small vegetable garden within the walls of a monastery in the town of Brunner, in what's now the Czech Republic. The monk was curious and ambitious by nature. He had long strived to be a teacher. However, his academic prowess didn't match his ambitions. Here he was standing dejected for the second time in six years after recently failing the examinations to become a teacher the monk had most notably failed spectacularly at biology. What the monk lacked in formal education, he made up in persistence and toil. For almost a decade, the monk bred peas and estimated 40,000 seedlings and meticulously noted variations in seven features of the peas over the generations. He observed variations in texture, colour, size, shape and position of particular elements such as the seeds and the flowers of these peas over the generations. A good example was this question, if a long pea breeds with a short pea, would the subsequent plant be of an intermediate size? The monk demonstrated that it was an emphatic no. It would be a long pea. However, if he kept breeding these long peas, a few generations later, a short pea would magically reappear, but never an intermediate pea. The monk was the first to document the heritability of traits which we now know is due to the transmission of genes. We have the pea-obsessed monk to thank for this scientific revolution. Probably unsurprisingly, as with many other revolutionaries throughout history, such as Galileo, the monk's discovery was not eagerly welcomed or celebrated. The monk did not get trialled for his heresy, but it was mostly ignored after he presented his findings in early 1865. Despite years of campaigning his findings to his contemporaries, the monk succumbed to poor health in 1884, aged 61. His work was still largely unknown. It wasn't until almost four decades after his discovery did the scientific community finally recognise the importance of the monk's work. His research was unearthed and was the catalyst for the genetic revolution, which included the identification of DNA by Watson and Crick in 1953 and the mapping of the human genome in 2003. Some listeners are probably familiar with the monk's name, Gregor Mendel. Whilst he was ignored and ridiculed during his lifetime, today Mendel is celebrated as the father of modern genetics. Science has bestowed him with the Mendel's Law of Inheritance, and importantly, for our discussion on the causality of vitamin D, Mendelian randomization. As we heard earlier, low serum vitamin D is consistently and strongly linked to poor health. But does low vitamin D cause poor health? Thanks to Mendel's observations over 150 years ago, science has developed tools that can help to tease out causality in association studies. These epidemiological studies have the benefit of measuring a very large sample size. However, the downside is that they can only show correlation, not causation. Mendelian randomization can help offset some of this. Just like Mendel had noted in his peas, 
there is variation in the species. Some peas are long and some are short. And this trait is inherited from the peas parents. It's not the product of the environment. Similarly, we inherit genes from our parents that are involved in vitamin D synthesis and metabolism. Some people are better and able to synthesize vitamin D than others. Mendelian randomization recognizes that in large epidemiological studies, people have different genetic abilities to metabolize and utilize vitamin D, and take this into consideration when analyzing the results. Mendelian randomization can essentially predict if genetically determined levels of vitamin D are associated with health outcomes. If there is no association between genetically predicted levels of vitamin D and the health outcome of interest, this suggests that vitamin D may not have a causal effect on that outcome. It's a little complicated, but the bottom line is it's a useful tool to look at causality. An explosion of vitamin D Mendelian randomization studies have occurred in the past few years, collectively measuring the genes and vitamin D status of hundreds of thousands of people. The researchers looked at conditions such as mortality, cardiovascular disease, cancer, ADHD, inflammation, Parkinson's disease, asthma, dermatitis, COVID, and diabetes. These studies overall mostly demonstrate a lack of association between the genetically determined vitamin D levels and disease outcomes. This suggests that there is no significant benefit from higher vitamin D levels per se. However, many argue, and rightly so, that the gold standard for nutrition and medicine are randomized clinical trials. Let's sift through this. Before we dive into the details of clinical trials, I want to be clear, vitamin D has an effect on our physiology. It is often argued that vitamin D is not so much a vitamin, but a hormone, based on its effects on receptors and the genome. Vitamin D is involved in the regulation, or switching on and off, of a lot of genes. The current count is 2,776. A bulk of these genes are related to bone health and calcium metabolism. My point here is that vitamin D has clear regulatory effects in the body. But do these mechanistic actions alone translate into long-term noticeable health improvements? Is vitamin D responsible for good health, or is it guilt by association? Instead of relying on mechanistic pathways to justify vitamin D's benefits, it's preferable to look at human clinical trial outcomes to better establish a causal role. Spoiler alert, the evidence is mixed and erring on the side of a little underwhelming. As we heard earlier on vitamin D's origin stories with Harriet Chick, the initial discovery was centered on bone health in infants and children. Fast forward to today, where thankfully malnutrition has largely been eradicated and we experience a significantly longer life expectancy. The interest in vitamin D has turned to its potential role in maintaining bone health in an aging population. There is a lot of research published on vitamin D supplementation in bone health, and it's not so easy to draw a simple conclusion because of a large number of variables, such as various doses, duration, ages, sexes, baseline vitamin D levels, etc. But, overall, the latest data suggests that vitamin D supplementation may have a small and region-specific benefit to bone mineral density, particularly if it is combined with calcium. Therefore, vitamin D supplementation may offer some protection against developing osteoporosis, in areas such as the spine and hips, if combined with adequate calcium intake. Okay, so there may be some small benefits to vitamin D for bone health, outside of rickets. 
But what about the links between serum vitamin D and health outside of the bone that I mentioned earlier? What happens when we supplement with vitamin D to get blood levels to the normal or optimal range? Does health improve? Let's take a look at some of the small positives. Immunity. The most recent meta-analysis of 25 clinical trials in over 11,000 participants found that there was a modest 12% reduction in the risk of a respiratory tract infection. The most profound results were seen with people with very low baseline vitamin D levels of less than 25. So there's a small tick for vitamin D supplementation there. Whilst on the top of the community, let's look at COVID and vitamin D. Again, if you look at the correlation data on serum levels of vitamin D in COVID, it can appear to be a pretty compelling case for the protective effects of this vitamin. For instance, a study early on in the pandemic in Israel found that COVID patients with a vitamin D deficiency, which is less than 50 nanomoles per litre, were 14 times more likely to have a severe or critical disease than patients whose vitamin D levels were over 100 nanomoles per litre. Many other observational studies show similar results. Low vitamin D is linked to incidence, severity, and mortality of COVID. But the data to date on supplementing vitamin D to prevent or treat COVID is at best mixed and overall not terribly encouraging. A good example is the recent test and treat coronavit study in the UK. 6,200 people were screened with an at-home test kit for vitamin D. Those with vitamin D levels below 75 nanomoles per litre were given either a low dose of vitamin D, which was 800 international units a day, a high dose, which was 3,200 international units a day, or no treatment for six months. Using a swab test to confirm cases, the results found that there was no difference in the incidence of COVID between the three groups. In a similar vein, the results on supplementing vitamin D in disease states linked to low serum vitamin D have overall shown rather disappointing results. The most recent meta-analysis investigating the effects of vitamin D supplementation on non-skeletal conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, mood disorders, muscle function, and bowel tumors, found no benefit. The authors hypothesize a reverse causation, which is that the low vitamin D status is a consequence of ill health. That is, the disease interferes with vitamin D status, or that people are too unwell to go outside and thus inadvertently miss sun exposure. However, there is a third alternative explanation on this vitamin D paradox. This was first raised by an unexpected ally. A leopard changes his sunspots. Dr. Richard Weller, a tall and rangy British dermatologist, has bucked the trend of his profession. Dr. Weller was plagued by a thought that had stuck with him since his time on a sabbatical to Australia as a general practitioner. In the typical Australia versus UK rivalry, the Aussie doctors boasted that the Australians are generally healthier than the Brits, particularly cardiovascular health. Looking at the data, Dr. Weller had to admit that cheeky Australian doctors were correct. Dr. Weller did his own sifting through the research and discovered, when all things being equal, the main difference between the Australians and the British was latitude. Australians lived at a lower latitude than the British, and there seemed to be an association. The further one lived from the equator, the poorer their cardiovascular health. 
This finding was even evident in the UK. Those in Scotland had higher blood pressure than those in London. The dermatologist thus began a professional double life. The second life essentially contradicted the first rule of dermatology, avoid the sun. At best, sun exposure will give you premature wrinkles, at worst, potentially fatal melanoma. But with this growing knowledge that sun exposure, as suggested by living at lower latitudes, is linked to better cardiovascular health, this fueled Dr. Weller's interest in the benefits of ultraviolet radiation. He also developed a theory on serum vitamin D, which may be best explained by looking at Van Halen and their hatred for brown M&Ms. Divas or deceptively shrewd. There are plenty of wild stories of celebrities with outlandish requests. Elton John once demanded the hotel concierge to do something about the excessive wind blowing outside. Kanye West felt his BBC dressing room's carpet was too lumpy and insisted that it must be ironed flat. Perhaps less audacious, but nonetheless peculiar, was an item on the backstage food menu requested by the 1980s mega band Van Halen. On tour, the band provided a detailed concert rider, essentially the concert contract, which included in the munchie section a dot point M&Ms followed in parenthesis and in capital letters, warning, absolutely no brown ones. For years, concert organisers thought it was just another bizarre request from prima donna rock stars. However, lead singer David Lee Roth finally revealed in an interview in 2012 that this request was in fact a genius move in quality assurance. The band, who used pioneering lighting and sound engineering in their shows, had a very long and detailed concert rider, and their performance depended on it being followed to the letter. David Lee Roth said this, If I came backstage and saw brown M&Ms on the catering table, then I guarantee the promoter had not read the concert rider, and we would have to do a serious line check. Essentially, the bowl of M&Ms was a proxy for the quality of stage setup. If David Lee Roth saw the bowl was devoid of brand M&Ms, then he would be confident the organisers had paid attention to detail to the rest of the setup. Now, back to Dr. Weller and vitamin D. Dr. Weller was well aware of the vitamin D paradox of low serum vitamin D is linked to chronic disease, but administering vitamin D has so far failed to restore health. Essentially, Dr. Weller felt vitamin D is the cargo cult of sunshine, not delivering the health bounty we'd expect. However, rather than other researchers suggesting reverse causation, that is, say inflammation from poor health lowers vitamin D, or unwell people seldom go outside, Dr. Weller proposed an alternative. Perhaps vitamin D is a proxy for sun exposure, but vitamin D isn't the main, or at least the only, mediator that is generated from sun exposure. Like the absent brand M&Ms, if vitamin D levels are high, then the person may have the right levels of other mediators induced from sun exposure, which are providing the real health benefits. Shedding light on ultraviolet light. Let's have a sift through the research on sun exposure or ultraviolet radiation on health and disease. Firstly, what is ultraviolet radiation? And what is UVA and UVB? Ultraviolet radiation is a form of electromagnetic energy that primarily comes from the sun. Essentially, it's a type of light that humans can't see, but some animals can, 
as they can detect these shorter wavelengths. UV radiation is thus a range, or a bandwidth, of light that collectively shares similar properties. Within the UV bandwidth are subcategories UVA, UVB and UVC. UVA is the longest wavelength and UVC is the shortest. Most interest in UV rays and human physiology relates to UVA and UVB. Due to the differences in wavelengths, a person outside can be exposed to a little or a lot of either both UVA or UVB depending on the time of day, the time of year and the latitude. UVA is generally more plentiful, whereas UVB becomes absent at high latitudes outside of summer. UVB exposure is required for vitamin D synthesis. But here's the rub. Despite strong links to skin aging and skin cancers, UV radiation, independent of vitamin D status, is linked to better systemic health. It's a double-edged sword. Let's look at the published benefits. The ever-growing list of benefits from sun exposure, unsurprisingly, mirrors the associations between vitamin D. Starting with the biggest smoking guns, several studies have found a correlation with those reporting the highest levels of sun exposure and reduced mortality. For example, the melanoma in southern Sweden study looked at 40,000 individuals and tracked them over 20 years. These results found a dose-dependent association with reduced all-cause mortality. The research is corrected for the usual suspects, such as smoking, alcohol, exercise, and BMI, yet the results still remained. In fact, the authors quote this, Non-smokers who avoided sun exposure had a life expectancy similar to smokers in the highest sun exposure group, indicating that the avoidance of sun exposure is a risk factor for death of similar magnitude as smoking. Looking at research on specific disease states and UV radiation, there is a correlation between low UV exposure and 15 internal cancers, which are independent of vitamin D status. Also, multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and COVID. From a distance, these associations are impressive. But, again, is this just more Nicolas Cage movies and swimming pools? Correlation. Does controlled exposure to UV radiation improve health. Naked at noon in Nambour. About an hour north of Brisbane is a stunning coastline that lives up to its name, the Sunshine Coast. Thus, the Sunshine Coast would be a great place to measure the effects of long-term chronic sun exposure. At the foothills of the Sunshine Coast hinterland lies the quaint town of Nambour. In the early 1990s, almost 1,700 of the townsfolk participated in a randomised clinical trial. Half the participants were instructed to religiously use sunscreen, while the other half received no direction for sunscreen use. These folk could frolic naked at noon with reckless abandon. The primary goal of the study was to investigate the protective effects of sunscreen on melanoma incidents. After 10 years of monitoring, the results did show those using sunscreen had a reduced incidence of melanoma. However, fewer people in the control group died from any cause compared to the sunscreen group. 1.5% in the control group versus 2.6% in the sunscreen group. More controlled clinical trials where the researchers have employed UV lamps have yielded benefits in numerous skin conditions, 
and one preliminary study found the use of narrowband UVB provided some benefit to people at risk of developing multiple sclerosis. Currently, there are dozens of clinical trials in progress looking at UV radiation for a range of conditions such as COVID, dyslipidemia, bone density, muscle strength, fibromyalgia, lymphoma, and the composition of the microbiome. Now, back to our British dermatologist leading a double life. In addition to practicing dermatology, Dr. Weller began studying the effects of controlled UV radiation. His team was one of the first researchers to show that using controlled doses of UVA to the skin, which does not induce vitamin D synthesis, rapidly and markedly lowered blood pressure. Weller's group helped identify a candidate alternative molecule to vitamin D, which may better explain the benefits of UV radiation. This molecule has a serendipitous and saucy background. Side effects that are hard to ignore. Advances in science and medicine are often due to reasoning, deduction, teamwork, and persistence. Occasionally there are flashes of genius. And sometimes, more often than people care to admit, there is a good dose of serendipity or just plain dumb luck. Alexander Fleming can thank his tardiness of not cleaning his petri dish before his long summer break in his discovery of penicillin. There are similar stories of serendipity around the candidate alternative molecule for vitamin D. In the 1990s, Pfizer was testing a drug, sildenafil citrate, on patients with cardiovascular disease. The early results were rather underwhelming and there wasn't much confidence in its practical and thus commercial utility. However, there was an unexpected silver lining. The male participants in the study noticed an obvious side effect, unprovoked and long-lasting erections. With a pivot in the positioning of the drug, a blockbuster was born, Viagra. Another noteworthy scientific serendipitous moment occurred in 1961, which resulted in less puns but more Nobel Prizes. Robert Furchgott, a biochemist from State University of New York, had his own Fleming-like moment. Furchgott was in pursuit of the chemical mediator that causes blood vessels to dilate. He noticed by pure chance that when arterial smooth muscle had been inadvertently exposed to the daylight streaming in from his Brooklyn lab, the muscles in fact dilated. He serendipitously discovered that ultraviolet light triggers blood vessels to relax. Almost 40 years later, Furchgott was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for his discovery in the chemical that mediated the effects of ultraviolet light on smooth muscle dilation, nitric oxide. Say yes to no. Nitric oxide, or NO, is a small molecule that exists in a gas form and has a dilating or relaxing effect on the smooth muscles that line the arteries. This can result in lowering elevated blood pressure or in the case of Viagra, which technically works by prolonging the signaling properties of nitric oxide, causes vasodilation and blood pooling in the penis. Nitric oxide can be synthesized by the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels, but also, as Dr. Weller and others have discovered, nitric oxide can be formed within the skin. Similar to vitamin D synthesis, where the vitamin's precursor, in this case cholesterol, is stored in the skin, and upon UV radiation, cholesterol is chemically altered in and unleashed as it travels to the liver and kidney to ultimately become the active form of vitamin D. Likewise, nitric oxide precursors, nitrate and nitrites, 
are stored in the skin and upon UV exposure through a series of chemical reactions, nitric oxide is released into the bloodstream. Dr. Weller and other researchers have produced convincing evidence that nitric oxide is mediating at least part or much of the beneficial effects of sun exposure, particularly in regards to cardiovascular and metabolic health. He argues that serum vitamin D is simply a proxy indicating sun exposure and its nitric oxide doing the heavy lifting. There's something about sunshine. To quote a late-night TV infomercial with a seemingly unbelievable offer, but wait, there's more. Time for me to pitch the addition of the steak knives to the deal. Sun exposure promotes vitamin D synthesis, which has some benefits to bone and immunity. Sun exposure also promotes nitric oxide synthesis, which has benefits to cardiometabolic health. Additionally, researchers have recently demonstrated a battery of other chemical mediators from exposure to UV radiation. Some recent studies have measured changes in the gene expression, known as the transcriptome, after both UV radiation and vitamin D supplementation. In the days and hours after a person is exposed to a dose of UV radiation, there is a marked increase in thousands of genes expressed not only in the affected skin, but also in the blood. That is, UV radiation affects the cells within the bloodstream, most notably the immune cells, which regulate inflammation and immune tolerance. Interestingly, the change in skin and blood transcriptome after UV radiation are different and often opposite to the effect of vitamin D supplementation on the transcriptome. Overall, vitamin D caused an upregulation of immune signaling, whilst UV radiation caused a downregulation. Further research is needed to understand it and contextualize these findings. However, some researchers suggest that these responses are an evolved adaptive response. When a person receives adequate UV, it is the seasonal signal of summer and the body is less likely to be exposed to winter bugs and thus it turns down inflammation. In contrast, the lack of UV in winter is a signal for the usual infectious diseases will be present and the body now prefers to have inflammation dialed up as this can help fight off these infections. But too much inflammation is linked to the usual suspects of chronic disease such as cardiovascular disease, autoimmunity and cancer. Just to quickly round out the discussion regarding the battery effects of UV radiation have on our physiology, in addition to vitamin D and nitric oxide synthesis, several other molecules have been identified to be released from sun exposure, including serotonin, dopamine, beta endorphins, hemoxygenase 1, and uricanic acid. Now, hemoxygenase 1 is implicated in the protection against autoimmunity, whilst uricanic acid can enter the brain and is linked to learning and is of interest in the prevention and management of Alzheimer's disease. And finally, in another example of how the body doesn't work in isolated silos, the body's stress response, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, has been found to essentially exist within the skin. That is, our skin can influence the release of hormones to help us deal with stress. There is a suggestion that the euphoria that is experienced from sun exposure may be in part to the effects of UV radiation have on our skin's stress response. Now that we've uncovered numerous physiological effects of sun exposure and shown how these are independent of vitamin D, I want to address the elephant in the room of UV radiation, skin cancers. Again, it's not a straightforward story as sun exposure equals skin cancer. Melanoma, a disease of melted wings. 
Off the east coast of Turkey in the Mediterranean is a body of water known as the Icarian Sea. The name comes from an ancient fable of a young man and his father who were both eager to escape imprisonment. Daedalus, a skilled craftsman famous for building the labyrinth for King Minos of Crete, was imprisoned along with his son, Icarus, for the crimes of treason and murder. The legend tells how Daedalus made wings out of feathers and wax for both Icarus and himself to soar the walls of the prison and fly to freedom. Prior to takeoff, Daedalus stressed to Icarus to neither fly too low or too high during their escape. Once in the open skies, Icarus was intoxicated with the act of flying and continued to soar high into the heavens. Icarus eventually flew too close to the sun, with the radiant heat melting his wings. Icarus plummeted back to earth, landing in the sea and drowning. The story tells of how the sea henceforth became known as the Icarian Sea. This allegory of Icarus metaphorically and almost literally describes the relationship with sun exposure and melanoma risk. We've just heard that perhaps we don't want to fly too low by completely avoiding sun exposure. On the other hand, if we fly too high, we can feel the wrath of the sun. The data on sun exposure and melanoma risk are nuanced and are a little surprising. Almost counterintuitively, the overall research suggests that chronic controlled sun exposure, say from outdoor occupational exposure, is either neutral or even protective against melanoma. The data doesn't suggest that it's the amount of exposure, but more so the intensity of exposure. Essentially, the research has produced a clear signal that sunburn, rather than sun exposure, is linked to melanoma. For example, one study found that those who noted five or more sunburns a decade had a 324% greater risk of melanoma than those who reported no sunburn over the decade. To further add nuance, Sunburn in early life, and particularly adolescence, appears to amplify this risk. But overall, the message is rather emphatic. Avoid sunburn. Melanomas are the leading form of fatal skin cancers, and with the avoidance of sunburn and diligent skin monitoring, the incidence may be reduced, or the prognosis can be more favourable. The relatively more benign form of skin cancers, keratinocyte cancers, such as squamous cell cancer and basal cell cancer, do appear to follow a dose-dependent curve. That is, the more sun exposure, the greater the incidence. Sunburn is also a risk factor, but total sun exposure is a stronger risk factor. The evidence on protection against keratinocyte cancers from the use of sunscreen is mixed, and there is some data suggesting that it's, this is due to inadequate application of sunscreen. This podcast is not about giving health advice, and people need to take into consideration their skin type. But looking at the risks and benefits of sun exposure, it appears if we don't fly too low or too high from the sun, you may hit the sweet spot. Diligently avoid sunburn, but some regular, controlled exposure may be beneficial. But for those not willing to risk sun exposure, or they live at a latitude that they're unable to reap the benefits of sun exposure, can we recreate the benefits with supplementation or other tools? Reformulating vitamin D supplements. Now back to my original analogy. Is vitamin D supplementation the cargo cult of sun exposure? Sitting on the fence, I would say yes and no, but I'm leaning towards yes, unfortunately. Vitamin D has its benefits, but I think there have been unrealistic expectations placed on it. 
The challenge I want to throw out to innovators and formulators is can we combine vitamin D with different or new ingredients to better replicate the benefits of sun exposure? Most vitamin D formulations seem to be doubling down on bone function by adding other bone-related nutrients such as calcium and vitamin K. My question is, can we think more about replicating the benefits of sun exposure rather than just supporting bone health or immune stimulation with vitamin D? Can we replicate or induce nitric oxide, hemoxygenase, or uricanic acid to better replicate the UV-induced transcriptome? Also, there is growing evidence that red, near-infrared, and blue light promote health and well-being without providing the problems of UV radiation. Should these be promoted in research more to act as sunshine mimetics? Rather than dismiss and criticise vitamin D, let's acknowledge its benefits, but also be realistic about its limitations. Vitamin D isn't a supplemental form of safe sun exposure. Let's build on vitamin D to continue to develop products and solutions to improve health. Thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. You've been listening to the SIFT podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. Leaving a review really helps us out. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider before starting any new treatment or discontinuing an existing treatment.